This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Federal Reserve plans to speed up its pace for pulling back economic support that was added during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Fed says it will shrink its monthly bond purchases at double the speed it previously reported. That acceleration means the Fed will likely start raising rates in the first half of next year. The Fed expects to raise interest rates three times during 2022. Congress has passed a $768 billion defense policy bill. The Senate voted 89 to 10 on the National Defense Authorization Act. The bill includes a 2.7% pay raise for military service members. It also focuses on expanding funding for research and development, mandating a review of the CMMC program, and looking at potential conflicts in cyber governance. There's a major security flaw in widely used software known as Log4j. Cybersecurity experts warn that the vulnerability threatens the security of much of the Internet, including online networks across the entire federal government. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's director, Jen Easterly, says the vulnerability poses a severe risk. CISA is now working to address the issue, and we'll talk more about that later in today's program. A tornado recently hit parts of the central and southern United States. More than 70 people have died and many more are still unaccounted for. After the tornado made impact, the White House authorized FEMA to respond to the disaster. FEMA's priorities are supporting life-saving and life-sustaining actions. Marcus Coleman is the director for faith-based and neighborhood partnerships at the Department of Homeland Security. He's part of the FEMA response effort on the ground now in Kentucky. Marcus, welcome to the program. Mimi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us what you're seeing on the ground there in Kentucky right now? Happy to. Uh, So I've been in Kentucky for a few days, and one of my first visits was with a bishop, Bishop Byfield, of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, We had met at one of her local churches in Mayfield, Kentucky, and the church was completely destroyed. I had an opportunity to talk to a few pastors and parishioners, and just to hear their stories of loss, of grief, um, and and on, on, in addition of hope, um, it was great to, to, to see and encouraging to see that despite all that they've lost, uh, they were very involved in, in helping their neighbors and providing neighbors their needs. Um, but it was very instructive for me as a representative of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, just how devastating this particular storm was for, for so many people throughout the state. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet with other disaster survivors as well. Um, and, and, and while I am encouraged uh, by all of the wonderful work and generosity that they have for one another, um, we're determined more than ever to make sure uh, that we work with our faith-based and community-based partners to provide all the support we need for what we know is going to be a very long recovery. Mm. And what, what's the biggest need there for survivors? So there's, we're still in the response phase, uh, life-saving, life-sustaining. And so I think one of the big needs and thankful to the state Uh, They are continuing to lean forward and we are here to support uh, as they get power back restored in some impacted areas. Uh, Sheltering continues to be something that's needed. And of course, we have critical needs assistance, but thankfully with partners like the United Way and 211, uh, they're able to start that process to identify some critical needs from our faith-based and community partners. In addition from FEMA, 
uh, we have started the disaster registration process. So we're encouraging all people uh, that have been impacted by the storm in the state of Kentucky to call 1-800-621-3362 so you can start your recovery process for your, in, uh, for your household uh, and for your family. And your role is specific to faith-based and neighborhood partnerships, and you mentioned meeting with uh, faith leaders. What's been the response that you've seen from those groups in Kentucky over the past few days? During every disaster, uh, I have the honor of being able to connect with leaders across faith and community leaders uh, who are providing food, shelter, emotional and spiritual care. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I've been encouraged uh, by their generosity uh, but also very, uh, it's been helpful to get a sense of just what some of the additional needs are for Poor Nation. Uh, many people do not know this, but there's actually a voluntary organization, Active in Disasters. Uh, this is a group that coordinates with one another about how to meet needs, again, ranging from feeding, sheltering, um, and, and things of that nature. You have groups like Operation Barbecue uh, that's providing free meals uh, to, to disaster survivors and first responders that need it. And we're just thankful for the work that they do. They also are trusted messengers uh, for credible information coming from government uh, and are helpful partners in understanding some of the unique challenges that maybe some disaster survivors don't quite feel comfortable sharing with us in terms of confusions about different processes and things like that. And so we're gonna continue to provide uh, as much uh, accurate and credible information we can about the steps to apply for disaster assistance. Um, and our faith-based and community-based partners are a big part of that outreach, in addition to the work that they do to support survivors every day. And Marcus, how are you working with state, local, tribal, non-governmental partners even to support communities hit by this tornado? So our role primarily is to support our state tribal territorial partners. And, and, and as I mentioned, appreciative to the state of Kentucky um, for, for being a partner to make sure uh, that we were able to support them as quickly as possible. So when disasters happen, everything we do is an ultimately support of the states and the counties and the townships and the tribes uh, that are leading efforts uh, that, that, that as the disaster recovery continues. Uh, what's unique about the state of Kentucky is on their emergency management agency. They have a volunteer coordinator. Uh, so that's been one of our key partners to make sure that again, as we identify faith-based and community-based groups nationally uh, that wanna come in and be of best help to disaster survivors, uh, that volunteer coordinator plus the voluntary organizations active in disasters have allowed groups to find ways to be of best help, not just in the near term, uh, but to help position some of the long-term recovery efforts we know are gonna be necessary. Uh, for so many families that have been devastated by the storm. And what have you found to be the biggest difficulties that you faced in your response efforts on the ground? One of the difficulties with storm, every storm, but particularly with a storm like this, is we recognize that it's going to be a challenge for people to identify the appropriate documentation to start their disaster recovery process. That is an area that our state partners, um, our local partners, and some of our federal partners are supporting as well. And of course, with many businesses being destroyed, uh, we know that there's gonna be uh, a lot of questions about uh, unemployment, about how to get businesses back up and running. And so I think a lot of what we're looking at is just the holistic picture for these communities um, in, in terms of where they're gonna go. But we know immediately for disaster survivors, uh, one area that we know we're going to have to continue to lean forward on is helping them identify the appropriate documentation uh, to continue their recovery process. 
And Marcus, what can people do that are watching and, and want to help? Is there something that they can do? Uh, yes, there are three things that you can do. Uh, so one thing that you can do is to donate blood. Uh, it's still very important. I know the American Red Cross is still doing blood drives. That is a practical way that you can go uh, and, and support not just this effort, uh, but many efforts to come. Uh, the second, if you are so able, uh, cash is best in terms of donating uh, to a nonprofit or non-government organization. Uh, National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters has about 70 organizations that are trusted partners that do disaster relief and are active in this area. The website there is nvoad.org. And if you have a friend or family member that's been impacted by this disaster, or if you're listening to this, and you know that you have uh, people in the community that need the information, sharing 1-800-621-3362, encouraging those friends and families to reach out to their insurance agent to make sure that they're getting all of the necessary recovery resources for insurance, and calling FEMA at 1-800-621-3362 puts them on a pathway to recovery. All right, well, Marcus, thank you very much. We wish you the best uh, and good luck in those recovery efforts. You can find ways to support those impacted by the tornado at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, a major security flaw could hit federal agency systems hard. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why Log4j could be a wake-up call for cybersecurity efforts. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. A security flaw in Java-based software called Log4j is sounding alarms across all federal agencies. The vulnerability is the soft in the software could cause major issues for government systems. Gordon Bitko is Senior Vice President of Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. He's former Chief Information Officer of the FBI. Gordon, welcome to the program. Hi, Mimi. Thanks for having me on today. So explain what this Log4j vulnerability is and why it's so alarming. Yeah, in simple terms, I don't, I don't really want to get too much into the technical details because it's a pretty technical exploit, but in simple terms, Log4j is open source software that's just really widely used. Lots of applications, lots of websites, lots of systems, all are built on top of the open source platform that uses Log4j. So it's very widespread, it's, it's everywhere. Government agencies use it in commercial software that they acquire, they use it in their own software and systems that they build. And the same thing for commercial entities as well. So what happens? So, so that, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, so I was going to say that what, the, the issue here is it turns out that there's a, there's a vulnerability in it. People discovered that there's a flaw that's been in it for the better part of a decade at least, and that you can take advantage of it to allow a malicious actor to run whatever code they want on your server, on your system. So you can see why that's a problem. That's what I was going to ask. What happens if bad actors exploit it? So it's pretty easy to exploit and to get into to get access to these systems. Yeah, that's right. It turns out that, that that's really the surprising part is it's been around for so long, wasn't known about for for a decade. And yet it's a very easy exploit to take advantage of once people know about it. And that's why everybody's so worried about it, because it's spread so quickly. It's very easy to take advantage of once you know what the vulnerability is. Now, how is Log4j different from SolarWinds? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Mimi. And on the one hand, where it shouldn't be different is in the preparedness of organizations, of agencies and others to manage their cyber risk, to think about what are the critical data that they have and how do they limit access to that and ensure that, that the worst doesn't happen or that they can recover if something bad does happen. But where it's really different is SolarWinds 
required pretty sophisticated capability on the part of a nation state actor to target SolarWinds, the company, and to insert this vulnerability. It didn't exist until the nation state actor went after them and put it in place. Log4j, on the other hand, is an open source product. This vulnerability has been there for a long time, and so it's spread everywhere naturally. It wasn't some third-party actor targeting government agencies or other entities. It's just the fact that everybody uses the underlying open source system that it's that it's built on that includes log4j that's the reason why it's so widespread you know you write in your article that there was already a fix available for this vulnerability before it became widely known so isn't this easily fixed yeah uh, it would you would think so on first inspection and and i did as as you noted in the forbes article mention that there is a patch it came out already it was available Good cyber hygiene would suggest that people would have been aware of that fix and deployed it. But the problem is, is that, again, Apache, which is, is where Log4j resides, is, is super widespread. And not everybody even really knows that they have it. It might have been a system that was built a number of years ago for internal uses. It's maintained by somebody, but they aren't really actively looking at it and keeping it up to date. And it turns out that it's quite hard to know all those dependencies. It might not be your primary system, but some underlying system or service that you rely on. And, and that is, I think, proving very challenging for developers, for IT professionals, for cybersecurity professionals to dig all the way down through that stack of software and find out if they have a risk. So what has CISA asked civilian federal agencies to do as a result? CISA has responded, I think, quite quite quickly and, and admirably. If you go to CISA's main webpage, there's a nice big tile right up in front which says log4j vulnerability. And, and if you click into that, you get a very comprehensive list of all of the information that they know about current vulnerabilities across all the different products that might use it and what you should do based on if you use those particular products. What they've told every civilian agency to do is they've got until December the 24th to, to mitigate this vulnerability, to employ the patch that, that you mentioned earlier, Mimi. And that's, that's based on the binding operational directive that CISA put out in November, where they said, here's a list of all the critical vulnerabilities that we know about, based on how significant they are. Here's a schedule for when you should do updates. And they've added this one to the list and they've made it a very high priority. They've given agencies less than a couple of weeks to, to address it, which is, which is abnormally quick. And this will, of course, be a, an issue for federal contractors as well because it's, it's so widespread, as you've said. I wonder, I mean, we're, we're still in the middle of it, but what lessons do you think we can learn from all this? I think there's a few important lessons. One, as I said already, the importance of good cyber hygiene across the organization and the basics really need to be emphasized. And, and a, a change and something that's got to happen, and we're, we're moving towards it slowly in the, in the, in the current administration, is establishing that cybersecurity is a priority from the top of the agency all the way down. It's not just the CIO, it's not just the CISO, it's, it's agency leadership that have to take up accountability for ensuring cybersecurity and managing that as a real risk to their agencies. So that's number one. But number two, a lot of the guidance that they put out, the agencies received from the administration in the cyber executive order about implementing zero trust, a lot of those things would help in this case as well. They would minimize the risk and they would allow agencies to respond better, to protect their data better. Well, Gordon, thank you very much for being on the program with us today.
You can find a link to Gordon's article at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, many communities across the country don't have access to broadband networks. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the federal government plans to bridge the digital divide. We'll be right back. Broadband technology enables nearly every part of our online activities, including the delivery of government services. But there's a lack of access to broadband networks in many communities. The $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill provides over $65 billion to bridge that digital divide. John Bailey is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. John, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So the NTIA is the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. It's part of the Commerce Department. They're getting the lion's share of this funding. What are they responsible for? Well, they're responsible for two major programs as part of this, this funding package. One is the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. This is mammoth. It's $42 billion. It goes out to states through a formula that uh, every state gets at least $100 million. And NTIA has to administer this grant program and the funds can be used to build out broadband networks, it can be used to help uh, make broadband more affordable by providing subsidies to low-income individuals, it can also be used for training. Uh, and then there's a, a, a broadband equity access program and that's another competitive grant program that NTIA will minister and that, that is to really help underserved populations. So you have low-income families, uh, families of color, veterans, uh, as well as formerly incarcerated individuals, those funds will go to help make sure that they have connectivity too. Does NTIA have the capacity to administer such a large program? It's a great question. I, I'm worried about two capacity issues. One is NTIA. They have never had um, funds of this magnitude that have to get out the door so quickly uh, and, to, and to do it with making sure there's no fraud, waste, and abuse. And so they have a huge capacity issue at NTIA, and I know they're, they're busy trying to get staffed up. They're bringing on additional help and support. But also on the flip side of that, governors have a capacity issue here too because governors have to compete for the funds. They have to put together plans. Uh, and so we have to make sure there's capacity at both ends. They have to identify projects to begin with of where are they lacking broadband access in their state. That's correct. Uh, these funds go to areas that are underserved or unserved, and that's all defined by speed. And so uh, governors are going to need to put together broadband maps. They're going to have to map out where are the speeds just not sufficient enough that they're going to have to give the, some additional fiber optics or some other additional support to help bring it up to the speed goals that are set out by the legislation. And what you were talking about before as far as equity goes, that's called the Digital Equity Program. That's correct. How do you identify where, where that need is? Well, you do it in a couple different ways. You do it through uh, sp speed testing and maps. You work with your local telecom providers and help identify who, who has slow speeds. Uh, but the other is looking at populations that for a variety of reasons are just not connected. And you do that through surveys, you do that through focus groups, you work with your community-based organizations, uh, and you start looking at what are the barriers that are preventing those individuals from having connectivity. Is it a lack of training? Is it that they need some extra support for signing up for the government programs? Or is it that they actually need infrastructure built out to their communities? And then you start putting together a plan from there. And not to state the obvious, but without broadband, you're pretty much out of luck. You can't do, you know, online school. There's certain jobs that are not available to you. You can't get access to certain government um, functions that are now online. That's correct. I mean, the pandemic really showed this to us, that if you didn't have connectivity, 
you couldn't access your remote learning. You couldn't, you couldn't apply for government uh, assistance programs, whether it was food stamps or unemployment insurance. You couldn't access the job training you needed to get back into the labor markets. And so I think what the, the pandemic showed us is that connectivity is essential. And again, it's amazing that Congress was able to pr provide a whole series of broadband programs over three legislative bills, the, the biggest being this one, $65 billion, uh, that can hopefully help us to finally close this digital divide. So what other agencies are involved in providing oversight and broadband infrastructure? Well, the FCC obviously is gonna be critical here. They're, they're, they provide uh, maps, they help with some of the speed goals, they're gonna help with some of the technical issues. Uh, they also operate uh, an affordable connectivity fund which helps uh, low-income families, uh, families that are on food stamps or WIC uh, or receive a Pell Grant, they can get a $30 a month monthly subsidy to help make the broadband that's available in their area more affordable for them. And so the FCC is gonna be critical. But I think you're also gonna see throughout the legislation, there's um, tasking the federal government with doing an interagency approach for this. So the Department of Education, because of the kids that are disconnected, Department of Labor, because of the job training aspects. There's gonna be an interagency coordination aspect of this to help with implementing the programs. What's the timeline? I mean, when can un or underserved communities expect to have broadband up and running? It's a great question. Well, so, so there's multiple programs and the FCC one, the emergency connectivity, or it's not, it's, it used to be called the emergency broadband benefit. Now it's called uh, the connectivity fund. Uh, that, that literally starts January 1st. And so just in a few weeks here and families can start applying for that immediately. For the other funds the Department of Commerce administers, those applications will be launched sometime in the next uh, four to six months. And as of this taping, John, has the nominee for the director of the NTIA been confirmed? He's not been confirmed yet. I know uh, we're, we're excited, hopefully, to get, a, um, to get his, his confirmation hearing soon, but it's, it's going to be critical for, for Congress to, uh, to go quickly through this confirmation. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers 
through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.